Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. This episode of Silent Giants is brought to you by Ali. Ali, powered by Verizon locations, are developed by Verizon, the world's leading technology company. In collaboration with Ali, a membership-only community workspace for creators, each location is a community curated and powered by the emerging technologies and thought leadership of Verizon. With Ali, Verizon is bridging the gap between startup and corporation by helping the community workspace build next-level ecosystems with entrepreneurs. And now, on to my interview with Bob Gruen. I wasn't making a decision to to have a career. I wasn't making a decision to have that career in music. I was hanging out with my friends. They used my pictures. The company hired me to take some more pictures. When I did that, they I met other people. They hired me to take other pictures. And one thing led to another. Yeah, yeah, check it out. I'm your host, Corey Cambridge. Uh, yeah. Everybody tuning in, you invited, you invited. No matter what mood you in, get excited, get excited. Everybody love the music. Let me tell you how they do it. Whether writer or an agent, let me tell you how they made it. You are now talking to a silent giant. Wanna walk in their shoes, silent giants. Wanna study they moves, silent giants. Wanna know what they do, silent giants. Silent giants, y'all. <laughs> Pod bless and welcome to another episode of Silent Giants, a podcast that highlights the superstars behind the scenes of popular culture. I'm your host, Corey Cambridge. To keep up with the latest on the show, be sure to follow us on Instagram at, at Silent Giants Podcast. To keep up with my life, music, and more, be sure to follow me as well at, at Corey Cambridge. Our Silent Giant this episode is the legendary rock and roll photographer, Bob Gruen. Ever seen the image of John Lennon in the New York City t-shirt? Or him standing by the Statue of Liberty? Ever seen the image of Led Zeppelin next to their jet? Yep, you guessed it. Bob is the man responsible for all those photos and for some of the most iconic images in rock and roll history. At this interview, I stop by Bob's Manhattan studio and we have an amazing conversation. We get into his early life and how he got into photography. He tells the story of how he became the personal photographer for Ike and Tina Turner back in the 60s and how that led him to become John Lennon and Yoko Ono's personal photographer. He shares the story of how he heard the tragic news of Lennon's death on December 8, 1980, and goes into detail about the backstory of some of his most famous pictures and so much more. So, without further ado, let me introduce you to the legendary photographer, my friend, the silent giant, Bob Gruen. We're, we're recording now. Okay. What's going on, Bob? <laughs> this. <laughs> <laughs> It was good seeing uh, you, man. Oh, uh, good. Thanks. This, this interview means Glad a lot to, to you. <laughs> <laughs> there are, are times, I say, say this all the time, by mm-hmm. me being, being from Virginia and moving to New York, there are times when you realize, wow, like, this is why you live in New York. You know what I mean? Because mm-hmm. you're, you're able to 
to you know, that connect that's with why folks. I stay here. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, I would say like in New York, if you see somebody that looks like Robert Redford, uh, no, <clears throat> let me start that again. If you're in Des Moines and you see somebody who looks like Robert Redford, it's probably somebody who looks like Robert Redford. <laughs> exactly. But if you see him in New York, somebody like that, it's probably Robert Redford. It's probably him, exactly. But that doesn't mean you're going to let him take your taxi. Because <laughs> <laughs> you got somewhere to go too. <laughs> there we go. Well, no, uh, this interview means a lot because I was watching a John Lennon documentary mm -hmm. on YouTube. And then saw that you were speaking, mm -hmm. uh, you know, giving commentary throughout the documentary. And I was like, oh, let me Google it. But then I realized you've decorated my walls. Oh, really? Uh, Thank you. With your photos. Yeah, a lot of people don't realize the same guy took all the different pictures. Yeah. They know the, me for John Lennon or for Kiss or for Led Zeppelin or for The Clash. I had the Led Zeppelin uh, but photo. they don't know that I did all of them. <laughs> yeah, I had the Led Zeppelin photo of uh, them near the jet. Mm -hmm. I, I had the the Lennon Statue of Liberty. I had the Lennon New York City. Mm -hmm. Uh, t-shirt i had the statue of liberty and i realized mm -hmm. like, oh, you, you've been a part of my life for well, forever thank you, <laughs> <laughs> you got good taste <laughs> uh, where, where does your journey start where are you from where's uh i'm from long island okay well, um, part of long island. In, i mean i'm not from long island i was born in manhattan uh, i grew up in long island i came back to manhattan when i was 18 and i've been here ever since which is a long time i've been in this building almost 50 years wow um since it opened in 1970 um and I learned photography from my mother when I was five years old. Um, it was her hobby. And she taught me to develop and print my own pictures. And I just took a liking to it. And I started doing it more and more. And I think that, you know, I became the family photographer, which is good training for rock and roll bands because you have to learn how to get like five or six dysfunctional people looking good for one sixtieth of a second. Yeah. And uh, that's what I learned with my family and then carried it on to lots of bands. So mm -hmm. you said your mom got you into mm -hmm. photography. Was she a photographer right. herself? No, my mom was an attorney. My, both my parents were. My mom actually graduated law school in the Depression, 1932. Uh, became an immigration lawyer. Uh, brought lots of people to America. Uh, helped people get their start here. Uh, photography was her hobby. Uh, but she enjoyed taking, uh, not just taking pictures, but developing and printing them herself. Uh, probably something she learned through the economics of the Depression. But anyway, she enjoyed doing it. And your, your dad? And she taught me how to do it. My dad was an attorney too, but he uh, ended up building houses. He became a contractor. And, okay. Because uh, how did how did your, uh, you mentioned that at five years old, you started getting into photography. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, how did you kind of fall in love with it or... Well, my mom had various cameras, and I started learning working with her when I was little. But then when I was eight, actually, they saw that I had an interest in it. They gave me my first camera, uh, which is a very simple Brownie Hawkeye box camera. It's got one button on it. Yeah. <laughs> you can't really mess it up. You either take a picture or you don't, you know. Um, and, and I started learning on that one. And then I think when I was 13, I got my first 35-millimeter camera and started getting better. And I'm pretty much self-taught. Uh, finally, in the 60s, when I thought I might actually be doing photography for a while, I took a class at FIT, uh, Fashion Institute, uh, and I, I learned some basic studio techniques, lighting and composition. And actually, the most important thing I learned there was the difference between a professional and an amateur, um, because we had assignments, and you had to bring in the assignment on time. And it's one thing to take nice pictures that you feel like taking, but what I learned there was to take nice pictures that other people wanted me to take and get them done on time. Mm. And that's the most important distinction uh, between liking photography and you know enjoying photography and actually working as a photographer. Uh, you have to be able to take pictures that other people want when they want them. 
Well, was there uh, early on? Was there uh, was there a natural gift that you knew that you had for it? Well, people seem to like my pictures f- from when I first started taking them. Uh, by the time I was in junior high school, I was taking pictures. We had a print shop class, and I actually learned about printing. Uh, but I took pictures of the class, and I think class, and I think some of the very earliest pictures I had published was for a print shop class uh, trade magazine for all you know different schools, and and it was featured on the cover and about three pages inside, and they were all my pictures. Uh, and then I took a picture of a fire on the way home from school one day, and that ended up on the cover of the local newspaper. Okay, which is my first uh, newspaper. Publish, publication, you know, first journalism kind of thing. Uh, so I was taking to it, but like I say, in my family, it was always kind of considered a hobby, something extra to do, pick up some extra money, but it wasn't really a career. Uh, my mom was right that it's not a high-paying career. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but I certainly had a lot of fun. Uh, one thing that you mentioned that you went to FIT and you were living in Long Island. Mm-hmm. No, I was living in New York. Yeah, when did you make the move to New York City? What year was this? Um well, I went to a couple of colleges after high school because I went through high school out there in Long Island and I went to a couple of colleges uh, briefly. I mean, a semester here, three semesters there at the most, uh, three different schools. And then I moved into New York um, 1965 in, uh, yeah, in, in June of 65, actually. I moved into Sullivan Street. Uh, the night they uh, were opening the Sullivan Street, uh, what do you call it? Um, the Feast of St. Anthony. Okay. Uh, so there was a 10-day st- street party right in front of my building. <laughs> Sausages and clams and rock and roll and beer. And I thought, this was, you know, I'm, I'm staying. <laughs> so I've been in New York ever since. What, what was the climate? I thought that was a great way to welcome the new neighbors. Although, actually, it was a neighborhood that didn't really like us. It was a hardworking Italian neighborhood. I lived with uh, me and my friend, and he ended up meeting a couple other people, and he started this rock and roll band. And we used to rehearse in the apartment. So... Eventually, the neighbors really hated us, and they burned down my car, and we left. <laughs> <laughs> so, so here, here you are. It's 1965, mm-hmm. you said? Yeah. Well, what is the climate like in New York City uh, at this time culturally? Hot town, summer in the city, back of my neck, dirt and gritty. It was like the Loving Spoonful time. Uh, the Night Owl Cafe was just getting from, like, uh, at that point, it was, the new music was called folk rock. You know, it was kind of moving out of the, Folk music era with, you know, bands like The Loving Spoonful, The Magicians, The Strangers, uh, you know, New York rock and roll bands that were starting to play, The Rascals, uh, those kind of bands that were starting, uh, you know, playing in local clubs. Um, Not that I got to see them too often because I couldn't afford, you know, the three or five dollar admission. Yeah. Uh, But when I did get to, I do remember seeing The Loving Spoonful at the Night Owl Cafe. That was amazing. Um, They were the local heroes. And uh, that was the summer I went to the Newport Folk Festival, saw Bob Dylan play with an electric band. Yeah. Uh, which a lot of people thought was a... It was controversial uh, at the time. Very controversial because it was folk music and he was playing with a rock band and a lot of people were booing, but what people don't talk about is a lot of people were cheering. A lot of people were yelling at each other. <laughs> it was very, you know, chaotic. People are really afraid of any kind of change, you know, anything being different. Uh, but I think it was very important. I think that what Bob Dylan was doing was making a statement that uh, rock and roll was the folk music of America, that, uh, that it wasn't a sacrilege, that rock and roll, and I think he was right. I think rock and roll is the folk music of America of nowadays. Folk music is the music of the folk, of the people. And certainly rock and roll is the music of the people. Uh, at, at what point 
with your medium of photography, did you know that you were going to uh, go towards a musical focus, a rock and roll focus? Well, it wasn't really planned. Uh, you know, I didn't set out to have a career. You know, um, it, 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 the 60s were very um, <laughs> turn on, tune in, and drop out. You know, I, I wasn't focused. I wasn't making a decision to... Uh, to have a career. I wasn't making a decision to have that career in music. I was hanging out with my friends. They used my pictures. The company hired me to take some more pictures. When I did that, they I met other people. They hired me to take other pictures. And one thing led to another. I just kept getting hired by people in the music business. And uh, I still meet no people today, mostly in the music business, because that's just where you end up, you know, uh, with one thing leading to another. I met a couple of fashion people. I've done a little bit of work there, but not a lot. Uh, but, you know, never really branched out into, I didn't have to. I just kept meeting people in the music business. Yeah. Well, so it wasn't really a plan. It was just, um, my plan was not to work at all. You know, yeah. that, that was the plan uh, to somehow just get by, you know, uh, the, the whole hippie idea, you know, and um, that didn't work. And I had to start making money and paying rent. And, uh, and so fortunately people liked my pictures. And like I say, it's just one thing led to another. So what was the first uh, opportunity to start filming, um, you know, music performers? Well, I, I, my life really changed when, I mean, I got a ticket, uh, a photo pass for the Newport Folk Festival. It was basically, uh, I talked my way in. I, I didn't really have any connections. I did take a bunch of pictures. Got one of the most published picture of Bob Dylan uh, playing electric guitar at Newport. Uh, there was a couple other photographers. For some reason, I'm Almost never seen their photos. My picture gets around a lot. But at the time I took it, I didn't know anybody in the business. And I actually didn't license it probably for seven or eight years till the early 70s when I started meeting people. Um, so my career really started around 1970. I mean, I'd taken pictures for the friends of mine, the Glitter House, this band I lived with. Um, and I was just beginning to meet people when friends suggested that we go see Ike and Tina Turner. They, they, they were the most amazing act. And uh, we went to see them. And I was uh, starstruck. I was just blown away by Tina's performance. Uh, at the end of her act, uh, she dances in a strobe light. You just see all these images of her just arms waving, legs moving. And she danced off the stage. And they were actually opening for Sam and Dave. And I think Sam and Dave came on the stage and did a show, but I was still watching the curtain where Tina had disappeared. I was just so mesmerized. Um, I remember that, like hardly even caring about Sam and Dave. Um, they were good though. <laughs> I mean, but I, I was just so blown away by Tina. She played a couple, they played a few shows in the New York area that week. So a couple of days later, I went to see him at the Honkamonka Room. It's a, you can't make that name up. It was a club <laughs> on Queens Boulevard. And um, and I took some pictures that night, and I got a couple of good ones. And at the end of her act, I knew there was the strobe light coming. So I had a few frames left, and I opened the camera to a one-second exposure just to see if I could get a couple of those images on one frame. And, and I did, and a couple of the three or four of them are useless. They just don't really look good at all, but one of them is just perfect. Like It just captured five images of Tina in one frame. That just capture the energy and the excitement and the power that is Tina Turner. And uh, I remember it's one of those moments that you actually remember seeing it come up in the developer and going, oh, wow, I think I got a good picture here. And I made some prints. And um, so I got a couple other good pictures that night. And we went to see Ike and Tina again in New Jersey a few days later. I brought the pictures with me to show my friends. And 
as we were leaving the theater, the, it was a theater and around, so the dressing rooms were outside the theater. Yeah. A friend of mine saw Ike Turner walking from one dressing room to another and literally pushed me in front of Ike and said, show Ike the pictures. And he stopped and he said, what pictures? And I said, well, I have these pictures from the other day. And he started looking at him. He said, come to the dressing room. I got to show these to Tina. These are great pictures. And all of a sudden, Tina was looking at him. And I remember Ike saying, I had a feeling somebody was taking pictures at the right time that night. And, and we just kind of had a connection. Uh, I got along really well with Ike and with Tina. Uh, my wife became very close with Tina. And um, and I started working with them. And nine months later, my first album cover was a Tina Turner picture. I, I, we actually started making videos for them. I had the first video tape recorder that was available to the public. It was uh, a Sony Porta Pack. It was a half inch reel to reel tape recorder. You had to thread the tape through the you know through this tape recorder. Uh, it, it was black and white, mono sound. Didn't work very well in low light, and it was state of the art modern sci-fi when it came out um because the fact is back then a band couldn't see what they looked like unless somebody made a film uh you know that if, uh, if you were on a tv show the tv show might even have been taped by the late 60s but you didn't have a two-inch tape recorder at home to play that back so a band would almost never get to see what they looked like you know if you made a film a film was expensive you had to get it developed and get a screening room so you couldn't see it until days or weeks later anyway if you did spend the money to get a film so with the poor with the sony video that i had we could tape a show and go into the dressing room or back to the hotel and immediately show it back and tina loved the fact that she could immediately go over the show with the iquettes and improve the act you know point out things where they could do better um, so i started traveling with them and that led to all kinds of new contacts and uh, connections. But what was that experience like? Uh, Ike and Tina were wild. They, I mean, uh, I never saw any violence between Ike and Tina, uh, for one thing. Uh, but you don't have to hit somebody every day. If you hit them once, you can just raise your fist for the next five years and, you know, control them. Uh, so, you know, I've seen the movie What's Love Got to Do With It. I, I think that... Uh, you know, Ike and Tina broke up for a very good reason, and I think the movie's very important, a very powerful message. Uh, but my film, we made a film with all the DVDs uh, called Ike and Tina Turner on the Road, and uh, my film shows why they were together in the first place. That wow. They were the hardest working couple in show business. They did an amazing act. Uh, we have footage of them traveling, sleeping on the plane, Tina cooking at home, Ike working in the studio. Uh, we basically traveled with them for about two, three years, um, filming them on and off uh, every few months. You, you mentioned um, earlier in the conversation that you know you were doing this and you weren't like you just didn't want to work a job. You know, right. you know what I mean. But now you you have a job. Uh, well, it became pretty uh, you know work, which I didn't expect. Uh, but I was having fun. I was uh, you know because uh, one thing led to another, and I met Alice Cooper, and I met Kiss, and. I was doing, you know, Shanana, and actually when I first met Ike and Tina Turner, I remember Ike told me to meet him at the Plaza Hotel in New York, and I was coming down the hall to his room, and there was a woman kind of hesitating before she knocked on the door, uh, and uh, when I got there, she said, are you coming in to see Ike? And I said, yeah, and she said, can I come with you? And I said, sure, uh, and she said, I'm Vicki Wickham, I I was the producer of Top of the Pops in England, and I know I can Tina very well. And she said, I know I manage a different band, uh, Patty LaBelle, uh, known as LaBelle. And, she's, yeah. and I remember her saying, uh, Patty's like Tina, but different. And she was so true. Uh, Patty LaBelle was 
second most exciting person I've ever seen uh, next to Tina Turner, uh, or almost as exciting as Tina, but different. You know, it's funny. Uh, Patty uh, LaBelle is my second concert. Oh, really? That I ever went to go see. Well, she's LaBelle, amazing. Well, just Patty or the, the, the LaBelle? Uh, just Patty. Oh, okay. Because I, I worked with him in the early 70s when it was Nona Hendrix and uh, Sarah Dash. Yeah. They were known as LaBelle. And uh, I did three album covers for him. Uh, they finally had a big breakout hit with Lady Marmalade. That's yeah. the album cover I didn't do. <laughs> I did the three before that. Uh, but I had a lot of fun working with them. Uh, Vicky was very creative. I remember one of our first photo sessions, she had made arrangements to use the Lodi Boys Club gym for a photo session. And uh, one of the pictures, she actually had them jump in the pool with their clothes on and unbutton their tops. And And, and it's a very kind of mysterious very sexy picture but you can't really see any detail yeah. but you know it's there yeah. <laughs> kind of with the ripples of the water and you see their shirts are a bit open and uh it's kind of risque without being risque at all uh it's uh, one of the pictures and a lot of the pictures i did with labelle um we went out to coney island one time uh, we were going to take pictures of them on the roller coaster so I said I wanted to try it out first to see how it was, you know, so I could get kind of a little comfortable riding backwards on the cyclone and holding a camera. And I found one of the most frightening things I ever did, and it was impossible to do again. And I was so scared. I haven't been on a roller coaster since. <laughs> Actually, you don't want to ride backwards on a roller coaster. Let me tell you that. It's not a good idea. Um, so I had all kinds of adventures with LaBelle. They were great. From this point, though, where you – or an aspiring photographer who is just doing this for the love of just taking pictures and you're here in New York City and you become professional. How did you learn to become professional? Like, Well, I had to pay rent. Um, you know, an a artist wants to make art, but you have to pay your rent. So I kind of adopted a motto from an advertising guy, Stan Freeberg, in the 50s. His motto was Ars Gratia Pecunica, which I'm probably mispronouncing Latin, uh, for art for the sake of money. There's a famous Latin phrase, Ars Gratia Art. Uh, ars gratia aris, which means art for the sake of art. Uh, and that's very um, worthy. However, you have to pay your rent. So my idea was always art for the sake of money. Uh, to you know, make art, make something that matters, make something that has feeling that people react to, but get paid for it. <laughs> yeah. So that's how it turned into a business. I found that I had to pay my own rent. But, but how'd you learn the business part of it? Did... Uh, trial and error, step by step. Um, you know, just getting burned a thousand times and finding all the different ways that people can hustle you and trying not to get hustled the next time. Right, because let's say, for instance, you were doing the album covers. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, but how did you know like what to charge for I your, your... I had no idea what to charge. You make it up as you go. You ask, <laughs> okay. some, you ask somebody, uh, you know, it, it's, it's really... This game of life, it doesn't come with instruction books. I mean, there are all kinds of instruction books nowadays, but I don't know. I think that life is very individualized, and you people learn on their own. Uh, with this early work with with LaBelle and and with Ike and Tina, are you knowing that the work, the work you're making is important at the time, or, or you just kind of just... Um, I didn't... In the moment. Well, for a long time, I didn't really feel my work was important, although personally I felt it was. You know, rock and roll was not respected. Uh, certainly when it was invented for the next 20, 30, 40 years um, until people found out that it wasn't a teenage fan and it wasn't going to go away. Um, it wasn't very respected. So, um, you know, it, it often didn't seem that important. But to me, it, I felt that it mattered. 
uh, going to CBGB's when no one in the world knew that it was there. Uh, I somehow felt it was important. It was important in my life. Uh, and, and I mean, we're all just a bunch of drunks get, hanging out in, in CBs, you know, tr trying to get laid every night, everybody picking up on each other. It was very incestuous. Um, and yet almost everybody in that CBGB's drunken post high school graduate course uh, became something. Legs McNeil, who was the most drunk, is a respected author nowadays. And uh, Patti Smith and, you know, the Blondie Band and the television band. These were all people who had nothing else to do and no hope of getting a job. Yeah. And yet they all turned out very successful. Uh, you know, how did it come uh, to be that you were going to work with, with, right? with John and Yoko? Uh, well, by 72, I had already done enough work. Um, Shortly after I met Argentina, I met a publicist who brought me to MCA Records and I met, um, and they hired me to shoot Elton John when he first came to New York. So I was working with him for a couple of years. Wait, Jackie so you, wait, Lomax was your first job with MCA was working with the, El Elton Well, Elton was an unknown piano player opening for Leon Russell. Wow. And I was an unknown photographer that, you know, his publicist convinced uh, the record company to hire to shoot Elton. And Elton liked my pictures. We got along pretty well. We're still friends today. Um, and so I worked pretty closely with him for the first five or six years when he came to America. And, and what, and, what is uh, that like seeing a, seeing an artist that is an unknown that you meet? Develop. It's it's kind of it's it's pretty amazing. Uh, you, you meet somebody as an opening act, you know, in the in the top dressing room, the third floor. You got to climb all the way up to get to his dressing room. Uh, and then two years later, we're in the dressing rooms at Carnegie Hall. And uh, and everybody's loving him, and it, and then uh, a year after that, he's playing Madison Square Garden. Uh, I think a year or two after that, we were at the Hollywood Bowl. <laughs> it's phenomenal, and also to see Elton's costumes and his entourage increase over those years uh, was pretty fun to watch. Uh, his clothes got quite eclectic and bright, and uh, and his entourage kind of grew, you know, from just Bernie to like a whole bunch of fans. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. 
Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. That he would, you know, people come and see him. Because photographers are my favorite people uh, to interview on the podcast mm-hmm. because they're able to capture, they have a bird's eye view to history. We get around. I remember meeting Tina Turner in Paris and her asking me if I had seen Madonna. Uh, who was a brand new act, and I had seen her actually at the, at the Roxy, and I could tell Tina about it. I remember being on a bus in Japan with the Bay City Rollers and showing them my videotapes of the New York Dolls wow. <laughs> from Axis, Kansas City. Wow. Uh, you know, you, you kind of get around, I mean, on the same day, the, the night that Tina Turner had her comeback show, and I got pictures of Tina with Keith Richard and David Bowie, when I left there at three in the morning, I went to Yoko Ono's house to hear the final playback of her new album and ended up taking a picture of her at dawn when Sean climbed into bed with her on Mother's Day morning. Wow. Um, you know, you just go from one place to another, sometimes extreme opposites. Um, and I don't think anybody's had as varied a career as I have, uh, going from Ike and Tina Turner and LaBelle to Elton John and John Lennon and Led Zeppelin and then also all the cla- the the Clash and Sex Pistols, all the punk groups. But I just um, I meet a lot of people and I get along with a lot of people. Well, yeah, I, I, and my life is very serendipitous. I, I don't, I mean, I I make a lot of plans, but you know, um, someone we were we were having drinks with Malcolm McLaren and somebody asked me and Malcolm, "What was your plan? How did you you know guess what was your idea? What was your plan?" And Malcolm and I looked at each other like, plan? Like, we didn't really have a plan, either of us. Uh, but Malcolm said it best. He said, well, you go to sleep at night. And you got some plans of what you think you're going to do the next day. And then you wake up in the morning and the phone rings. Or I guess nowadays the email comes in. And things change. And you make the best of it. And that was always the plan, was to make the best of it. Yeah, I guess we went on a, a little wild ride there because the original question was, how did you come to to meet John and, and Yoko? Oh, uh, okay. So by 72, I was already working with a bunch of different bands and uh, I was included in the first book of rock and roll photography called Photography of Rock. And uh, the writer who was doing the biographies of the photographers liked me and he liked my pictures. And after my interview, he said, I'm doing a story about an Elvin's memory band that's working with John and Yoko. Uh, would you like to come and take pictures of John and Yoko when I interview him next week? And I said, sure. <laughs> you know, and that's what happened. That's how I met John and Yoko. Um, they liked the pictures I did that night. They used one of them in their album package for the Sometime in New York City album. And they asked me to come around more often. And I'm still in touch with Yoko today. Now, you know, with some of the other other earlier acts, they were they were kind of new artists. But at this time in 72, the, the Beatles were... The, the, John was an unemployed guitar player when I met him. <laughs> but 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 he was still a member of the Beatles. Like and, he and was the leader of the Beatles. The leader of the Beatles. Yes, <laughs> the leader of the Beatles. He and, was John Lennon, and I wasn't. I always knew that. <laughs> and he was revered at that time. What was it like meeting him for the first time? What's the story? Uh, amazing. Uh, you know, we John and Yoko came to New York, and they were doing some projects. And people downtown, we heard that John and Yoko were here. Then I heard that they actually lived in an apartment around the corner on Bank Street, one block, uh, half a block away from here. And and that was very exciting. But, you know, in New York, you're not going to go ring somebody's bell and say, hi, I love you, you know. Right. <laughs> Can I get to know you? You know, that doesn't really work. So uh, I had no idea. I was just hoping someday I could meet them. Of course, everybody in New York did. Um, 
And I think the first time I ever saw him was at the Apollo Theater. I went for a benefit. Aretha Franklin was supposed to sing it, um, well, she did sing at a benefit for the families of the prisoners of, of the Attica prison riot. And a uh, bunch to my surprise, John and Yoko were there. And as they were leaving, waiting for their car, a couple of people were taking little snapshot pictures, you know, little box cameras they had back then with a little square flash thing. You don't know this way. No, no, no. <laughs> um, but um, anyway, they were standing around and people were taking snapshots. And I remember John and Yoko, John saying to the four or five people there, like, people are always taking our picture like this and we never see them. What happens to these pictures? And I said, well, I live around the corner from you. I'll show you my pictures. And he looked at me, he said, you live around the corner? I said, yeah. He said, well, slip them under the door. And I went by the house. I, I, I made some prints. It was kind of a nice picture I took of them, a um, couple of uh, pictures of them on stage. And um, and I actually rang the doorbell. I didn't slip it under the door. Uh, and much to my surprise, Jerry Rubin answered the door. Who's Jerry and, Rubin? Uh, I wasn't expecting him. He was a radical revolutionary from the 60s. Okay. Uh, not somebody you would be expect to see opening John and Yoko's door. Um or anybody's door. <laughs> You'd think somebody would be opening his door. <laughs> you, know, you know what I mean? He was like a guy in the newspapers all the time, a real radical, famous guy. Um, anyway, so I left the pictures. And uh, and years later, I found out that that impressed John and Yoko because nobody ever just gave them anything. Everybody wanted something. And I was just, you know, taking it for real and saying, well, I, I'm just giving this to them. My number's on there if they want to call me. <laughs> you know, they didn't actually. But then it was a few months later that we did this interview. And uh, because the interview was about the Elephant's Memory Band and not just John and Yoko, I asked if I could come to the studio with them. And I took some pictures of them that night with the Elephant's Memory. And um, they contacted me a couple of weeks later and used one of the pictures in their album cover package and told me to come around more often that they liked my pictures. And... Um, and I've been working with them ever since. Wow. <laughs> um, we just got along. I mean, I can't tell you how to become friends with somebody. I've taken pictures of thousands of people. I've become friends with dozens of them. Uh, not everybody. Right. You know, uh, some people you get along with, some people you don't want to see again. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. Some people are assholes and some people are cool. I don't know. Some people you, you just hit it off with. I don't know. I don't know how to explain how come... Uh, I ended up becoming so close to Yoko, but uh, she's an amazing woman, and I felt absolutely honored and lucky that I did get to know her. Um, the the photos that you you've taken of of John have been, you know, kind of I would say the most, as far as photography is concerned, the most recognizable pictures that encompass New York City. A couple of them have become pretty iconic, and uh, I mean, I, I was at a wedding last night, and a couple of people you would. Israeli real estate guys, and I mentioned the John Lennon New York City picture. Like, oh, I know that picture. Yeah. I, I, it's become kind of the standard picture of him. And the picture just came about on a day when we were actually doing an album cover picture, and that was sort of an extra. Uh, you know, John said, well, let's take some more pictures so we have some ready for publicity. And, uh, and after John passed, that picture just kind of took off and uh, became the symbol for, you know, who he is. I mean, I personally like the picture of the Statue of Liberty. Yeah. That's one of the most important pictures I took. Uh, it was taken because uh, the U.S. government was trying to throw John out of the country. And I felt that was you know, pretty wrong. The Statue of Liberty is a symbol of welcoming people, especially great artists like John Lennon. We should be welcoming to America, not trying to kick them out. So one day it just occurred to me, like, why don't we take a picture by the Statue of Liberty to dramatize the case and show we're supposed to be welcoming them, not throwing them out. 
And uh, I was very happy that he agreed with me because he's pretty much of a master on media. And, you know, if he thought it was a good idea, it was probably a good idea. <laughs> um, taking the picture was relatively simple. We just took the boat out there like two people do, you know, a guy from England and a friend from New York and went out in front of the statue to take a picture of him there. And then the only complicated part was that he's just under six feet tall and the statue is 305 feet tall. And there's only so far back you can go because it's an island. Right. <laughs> you know, you can't just keep going back until it looks right. So lining up the proportions, I remember, is being the hard part. But we got a good, you know, pretty good picture that day. And it's certainly been on a lot of people's walls because I think that it, it wasn't really published very much when we took it as part of the campaign to help John get a green card, to help John stay in America. But after he passed, it became much more popular because I think a lot of people relate to John Lennon in terms of personal freedom, the way they think of the Statue of Liberty. He's an Englishman, but mm. what was it about John and his love for New York? Like that he's he's almost seen almost as a, as a New well, Yorker. Well, there's a funny thing about New York that we talk to people who live here, and almost everybody comes from somewhere. Uh, it's rare that you find a New Yorker who said I was born on 17th Street, you know, and Second Avenue or something like that. Uh, people grow up in Brooklyn or the Bronx, but uh, most everybody in Manhattan comes from somewhere. Uh, so it was not unusual for John to have come from New York. I had a friend, Giorgio Gamelski, actually, the guy who gave the Rolling Stones their first gig. And he was born in, I think, on a boat to Italy and then spent time in Paris and in London. He came to New York in mid-70s and at one point in early 2000s he was saying to me like i have no country i said Giorgio, you're a new yorker you've been here 25 <laughs> years longer than you've been anywhere else you're a new yorker that's what happens when you stay here you become a new yorker like like i say almost nobody's born here i mean there's people out in the boroughs who are born here but you know a lot of the people uh andy warhol came from pittsburgh you know, nobody questioned, like, why did he become a New Yorker? Uh, why shouldn't John Lennon become a New Yorker? Uh, Yoko's friends were here. She did a lot of her artwork here. And, and when he came to New York, he met people like Andy Warhol, but also Nam June Pike and John Cage and Charlotte Mormon and Ornick Coleman and, and a lot of Yoko's avant-garde friends. And he really enjoyed that scene. You know, growing up in Liverpool... And going to art school, he was interested in art, but in Liverpool, you don't really get exposed to the kind of, you know, world-class people that you find in New York. And so, you know, he was on the courthouse steps once during his immigration hearings, and one of the reporters said to him, why do you want to stay in America? And he just looked at the guy and said, why do you? Mm. <laughs> you know? Right. Like, everybody wants, you know, America's a good place. <laughs> uh, I what was it like, um, you know, hearing of his passing? You know, That's about the worst thing I ever heard. Where were you? Um, I had, uh, you know, their album came out, the Double Fantasy album came out in uh, like November, I think, or December. It was moving up the charts. It was like a hot, you know, you know, album going up the charts and uh, people starting to write articles. And so I went to visit. They were in the studio um, preparing, mixing and preparing the second half of the album. It was supposed to be a double album and they didn't finish it. So they got the first half out and they were mixing the second half. And actually Yoko had gotten such good reviews for the first time in her life. And John was so happy about that, that uh, they were recording a single that Yoko had just made, the Walking on Thin Ice single. Uh, and I went to visit in the studio to ask them what pictures they wanted me to use for the increasing publicity that was coming up. And Yoko said, well, we're getting so much attention, we should take some more pictures. 
So we took some pictures that night, Thursday night, stayed up all night. And then, uh, and John had a special jacket he had just bought. And he said, come back tomorrow night. I want some pictures of my new jacket. And I came back Friday night. And again, we stayed up all night. I actually took pictures as they were leaving the studio at like seven o'clock in the morning, Saturday morning. And I went home and slept for a day or two and then developed the pictures. And I was in the dark room developing the pictures Monday night when uh, my doorman asked me if I had a radio or TV on. They buzzed me and asked if I had a radio. And I said, no. And he said, well, I just heard that John Lennon was shot. And uh, I remember just sinking. I couldn't believe it. I thought maybe, uh, you know, New York was dangerous at the time. And I thought maybe he'd gone out. He never had any money. And I thought maybe he had gotten robbed. Like shot doesn't mean dead. And then a friend of mine called me from California and I said, he, he said to me, what's going on? I said, I have no idea, what do you know? And he said, I just heard on the TV that John Lennon was dead. And that was about the worst thing I ever heard in my life. Um, uh, because dead is uh, the most permanent word. You can't fix that. You can't change that. You can't make it better. And, um, and then people started calling and I realized that my job was to help John look good in the newspapers. And I remember literally crawling across the floor to the file and starting to go through the file and pull out pictures to get out. And uh, that's what I did. I didn't sleep for the next seven days. Well, uh, it was kind of a bad week. Um, another photo that I wanted to get into was the Led Zeppelin photo in front of the jet. <laughs> mm. uh, that was the first day I met them. I didn't really know Led Zeppelin. Uh, I worked a lot with... Uh, a journalist called Lisa Robinson. Uh, nowadays, she's the music editor of Vanity Fair magazine. Uh, but back then, she was the columnist for the New York Post and syndicated in 175 newspapers across America, as well as England, the New Musical Express, the biggest music paper in England. So she was probably the most powerful journalist, I mean, the biggest, most respected journalist in, in the country. And luckily, I got along with her. She was a pretty tough woman, but so was my mom. <laughs> so yeah. I got along with her very well. And... Um, and I did a lot of work with her. So one morning, she and we did this magazine called Rock Scene Magazine, which would cover the whole scene, not just a picture of a guy with a microphone or an interview, but pictures of a whole tour on the bus in the different cities at the after parties, pictures of the managers, pictures of the backstage scenes. You know, uh, it was called Rock Scene, and we covered the whole scene. And um, and so Lisa called me one day. She said, uh, can you come with me today to Pittsburgh? And I said, with Led Zeppelin. And I said, how are we going to get to Pittsburgh? She said, they have their own plane. I said, well, that sounds okay. <laughs> you know, I'm not? in. I'm in. You know? So I met her at a hotel in New York. We, uh, I took a couple of pictures as the band was coming out and getting in the limos. And then we drove out to the airport. And there's a couple of pictures of them standing around. And then either Lisa or Robert said, like, let's take a picture by the airplane. And it was like the last five or six shots on the roll. We took a few pictures and got on the plane. and didn't seem like a big deal at the time. Uh, now it kind of represents all the decadence and the excess of the 70s. You know, these guys got their shirts wide open. They don't give a damn. And they got their own airplane. And the fact is that airplane was really, uh, they didn't own it. They rented it, which is pretty good anyway to rent your own airplane. Uh, 727, I think it was a big airplane. Um and I, I've been on that airplane with Elton John. Uh, the Rolling Stones rented it. Alice Cooper rented it. When you rent it for a month, they put your name on it. Um, 
I have a picture of, of Elton with that plane, but he's way out on the tarmac. So you see the whole plane in the background. And it looks like some little toy. Whereas with Led Zeppelin, we were about to get on. So they're standing right there. So they just went over and stood by the wing. And the plane is so big, it doesn't fit in the picture, which really makes it even more, you know, enormous. Because you don't even, you just see the sense of this giant plane surrounding them. Uh, so it really came out to be a pretty good picture. And like I say, it's kind of sums up the decadence of, of the 70s. You, you answered the question that I had in that answer is because, you know, with a photo, they say a picture takes a thousand words. Yeah. And I often wonder like what the photographer has to say and what are their thousand words mm. about the picture and what it represents. But oh, decadence. decadence and excess. <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you don't need that big a plane. Uh, I mean, nowadays, uh, I went on a plane more recently with Green Day. Uh, it held eight people. <laughs> you know, it held a band, basically, and their manager. Uh, I mean, you don't have to bring 20 friends along <laughs> on every flight. <laughs> the Starship had... Um, uh, it had two bedrooms in the back. <laughs> it had a brass bar with a, a p piano keyboard, organ key piano built in. Uh, one time when Elton's had it, actually, they snuck Stevie Wonder on earlier, and they hired me to come along and take a picture. So Stevie was in the bedroom when the plane took off, and Elton was in the front seats, trying a little hungover and trying to catch a nap. We were flying only 20 minutes to Boston, and the publicist said, you have to come back, there's a... the Playing company hired a piano player and he's playing for you. You have to see him. And Elton's like, no, I don't. I rented this plane. I got to take a nap. And he said, no, you have to come back and see this guy. And they kept telling him to come back. And he kept putting, you know, getting almost getting angry. And finally, he's like, okay, I'll come back. And he walked back and uh, uh, what do you call it? Um, Stevie Wonder was playing Crocodile Rock. Wow. On the come on. bar piano. <laughs> And that changed Elton's mood entirely. <laughs> and uh, That would change anybody's it mood. It turned into a party, so that was good. You know, with, with someone like you, Bob, I thought we can talk for hours, mm. but, you know, I wonder what it's like to sum up the interview. You know, you mentioned earlier in your career where you, you had no real expectation. You, you just like taking pictures. And, mm. you know, here you are now, mm. and you've recorded some of the most iconic images of music history, you know, the th things that, you know, you, you walk down Chinatown and they have mm. the John Lennon, New York City t-shirt. There's a lot of bootlegs out there, that's yes. true. Um, I kind of deal with that by feeling lucky that I took something worth stealing. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, how does it feel to to know that you've left something, the, the artists you've, you've taken pictures of have left something iconic and recognizable mm. that will live on way longer than them. How does it feel for um, it's yourself? It's just kind of dawning on me more and more every day now um, how well-known I am um, and how it mattered. Uh, it, it feels pretty good to have made a difference, um, especially, you know, all the angst I caused my mom, uh, being just a drunk hanging out in bars most of my life. And then she luckily lived long enough. When she was 94, she came to Brazil and saw a massive exhibit of 280 of my pictures in a big museum down there. Uh, a big budget uh, exhibition that really uh, vindicated all the hard times I had given her. I introduced her to the, to the mayor of Sao Paulo and to a national senator who are both actually friends of mine. Wow. Um, I don't know. Last night I was standing at that rainbow room looking out over all of New York uh, with a friend of mine. Uh, the father of the groom was the bass player of the band I lived with in the 60s. Wow. And I was kind of remarking to him how amazing it was 
that we had survived, that here we were at the Rainbow Room for his son's wedding, and it all made sense. You know, it's, it's still, I'm tearing up now just thinking about it, but the fact that I felt comfortable there, that it, it really was my life, that I ended up in a amazing place. <laughs> you know, who is Bob Gruen as an artist yeah. and as a man? Uh, me? Well, um, like I say, uh, rock and roll to me is about the freedom to express your feelings very loudly in public. And I've tried to capture that in my f pictures and spread that word around the world because I think it's all about freedom. And my life has always been all about freedom. And, um, you know, lastly, Bob, I've been able to interview some amazing silent giants on, on this podcast. You know, people who have changed the l landscape of popular culture uh, forever doing photography and was really on the time of the artist. Mm. You know what I mean? And they have very hectic schedules and lives. Oh, yeah, you got to be there when they want you there. It's not your own choice. <laughs> yeah. Uh, what have you sacrificed uh, to be great and to achieve what you've achieved? <laughs> Explain that further if you can. Uh, everything. I don't know. I mean, uh, yeah, because this is what I do. Uh, in terms of sacrifice, you could say sacrifice or... Um, donate you know um it's what i want to do uh, you know uh, what was i sacrificing to go to a concert and take pictures uh staying home and not having a job i don't know <laughs> you know like that was the choice uh i'm not really good with the nine to five job idea that my parents were promoting because uh I, I never got along with the nine o'clock part yeah <laughs> uh i got fired from several jobs early on because i just couldn't get there at nine in the morning uh, I'd rather work at five at night to nine in the morning <laughs> than, than nine in the morning to five. Uh, often I have worked all night rather than all day. Um, I sacrificed the family life. Uh, that's my kind of biggest regret, although I couldn't have done it any other way. And I have a great relationship with my son nowadays, but I didn't grow up with him. Yeah. Um, and... Uh, you know, there was a loss in that. But other than that, I've had a ball. <laughs> <laughs> I get to some awfully exciting places pretty regularly. Oh, well, Bob. And, and, I, and I like that. <laughs> Bob, I want to say, you know, I'm a humongous fan of popular culture. Mm. And, you know, thank you so much for your contributions. Well, thank you. know, you. you've made the world a it's better place through your art. <laughs> well, it's been fun. And I'm glad that people enjoyed it. Uh, that's the biggest surprise that people actually like what I've done. Well. Bob Gruen, thank you so much for being here, man. I really My appreciate pleasure. you. Thank you all so much for tuning in to another episode of the Silent Giants podcast and to our special guest, Bob Gruen. This episode of Silent Giants was mixed by Mark Bird. And lastly, before we get out of here, check out my other show, OPP. Other People's Podcast is the TRL of podcasting. Every week, we interview America's most popular podcasters to learn more about them and the dope shows they created. I provide the link to OPP in the description of this episode. I'm your host, Corey Cambridge. Pod bless. Till next time. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. 
And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.